Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Dr. Jim Woody. He's the CEO of 180 Life Sciences, a clinical stage biotech company focused on novel drugs for unmet needs in inflammatory diseases, such as fibrosis and pain. Uh, Dr. Woody was a founder and served as chairman of the board of directors for Veracta Pharmaceuticals, a lymphoma therapeutic company. He's also served in a variety of health and management roles, including president of Roche Bioscience and CSO and SVP of R&D for Centacore, where he was part of the team that discovered Remicade, name is also uh, trademarked, uh, to treat arthritis, which is now one of the best-selling drugs in the world for arthritis. Uh, Dr. Woody has also served as commanding officer and director at the U.S. Naval Medical Research and Development Command. He holds an MD from Loma Linda University and a PhD from the University of London. So, Jim, thanks for coming. Thank you, uh, Richard. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so tell me about um, 180 Life Sciences. The website looks like is 180lifesciences.com. Uh, tell me about the company and your involvement with it. Sure. 180 Life Sciences was actually put together from three prior companies. We had uh, one company in the uh, UK around Oxford, uh, England, that was working on uh, research and uh, therapies using uh, anti-TNFs. We have another company in Israel working on cannabinoid uh, compounds that are very unique. Uh, and a third one here in uh, Palo Alto, California, working on another set of inflammatory uh, compounds. So we're trying to treat inflammation, fibrosis, and pain. So we brought all three of these together uh, under a SPAC and went public back in uh, November of uh, 2020. Okay, and what's the, uh, the, the current actions of uh, 180 Life Sciences today? Like, what's the focus of the company? Yeah, we're uh, focusing on... Uh, 
uh, inflammation, fibrosis, and pain, which is a sort of common problem around the, uh, around the world uh, with rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease and psoriasis and uh, a whole variety of, uh, of other things, including uh, the COVID uh, uh, pulmonary problems are kind of inflammatory. And so we put together a team of uh, researchers, experienced researchers, to work on this. Dr. Mark Feldman formed the uh, organization. Uh, he and I worked uh, together a long time ago when I was chief scientific officer at Senecor, and we were the very first ones to ever make an anti-TNF antibody that was administered to humans. And uh, we showed in rheumatoid arthritis that we could stop the disease and actually save the joints. And uh, now there's probably over 40 million people who've been treated and uh, has a huge industry for uh, anti-TNF therapies are worldwide. There's no patients left in wheelchairs with rheumatoid arthritis because of that drug and the follow-on. What does that mean, anti-TNF? Can you describe the drug and how it works? Sure. In your body, uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, proteins circulating around that kind of messengers and they tell other cells uh, and organs what to do. They're called uh, cytokines, and uh, most of them are good ones. Some of them are bad actors, and one of the bad actors is called TNF, tumor necrosis factor. It's kind of a misnomer for the name because it was discovered by uh, a person who used it to uh, destroy tumors. That never worked clinically, but it's stuck with the name, so it's tumor necrosis factor. So this is one of the bad cytokines that activates the inflammatory system. Uh, it can destroy your joints in rheumatoid arthritis. It can de destroy your colon in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, so it's a, a bad actor, and we have a way to finally uh, block it. This was the first major breakthrough for rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease probably in 100 years. Uh, in terms of therapy for them. And now it's widely used on basically everyone. And is that the drug called Remicade or, or is that something different? That was called Remicade. Now there's a, a variety of others. The largest selling one is from AbbVie called Humora. It's a slightly better version, but it does the same things. And uh, it sells for $20 billion a year. So AbbVie's done pretty well off of our uh, our invention. And there's basically been no changes in uh therapeutic indications for the last 28 years since we invented uh, Remicade. And so now we've found uh, at least three new ones that we think are going to be blockbusters in themselves. Okay. And then uh, just to recap, so the current initiatives of 180 Life Sciences now are what? And I'll ask you a few questions about them if it's okay. Yeah. In the uh, anti-TNF area, we're treating a condition called Dupatrins, which is a condition of the palm of the hand and a nodule begins to form there. And over uh, maybe a year or so, it begins to uh, form a fibrosis tissue in the hand, and it pulls your fingers together until you can't button your clothes, you can't type, uh, you can't play an instrument, you can't do a lot of things. So you have a real disability. And there's uh, several therapies that people try, steroids, uh, Zyaflex, which is a collagenase, and eventually they all go to surgery, which was what happened to my wife uh, a couple of years ago when she developed Dupatrin's. So that's one area, and uh, we found that if you inject these nodules with this anti-TNF, we think we can prevent the disease from forming altogether. And we've completed 181 patient clinical trial to show that, and uh, we uh, we will uh, be carrying on with that. Let me shut off my phone here. 
And uh, that uh, is completed and they're doing the analysis, probably be out about fourth quarter. So that's... Well, um, what, what are the reasons that fibrosis happens like in that context or in other contexts you work in? Like, what do you think of the biological mechanisms that cause it? Well, I think it, it, the Dupuytrens has, to, has a large genetic overlay uh, because the people from Scandinavian countries have probably twice or three times as much as other people. It, it affects about 12 million patients in the U.S. and 12 million in the, in the EU, but quite a few of them are in the Scandinavian countries. And how, how it starts and why is a little unclear. We don't know what begins this process, but it starts as a small nodule in your hand, which uh, we can hopefully treat and prevent it before it becomes disabling. Because if it becomes disabling, the therapy is long and you eventually have to have surgery which isn't exactly satisfactory. My wife's uh, condition is partially back now after the surgery. So it's not, uh, not good. Better if we can prevent the whole thing. So what do you think? Do you think the TMF, TNF has it been used clinically yet or has it gone through clinical trials? To you know, What stage is it at, this therapy you're contemplating? Yeah, so we did a, we did a small trial of about 30 patients where we uh, pulled out the, uh, the nodules and figured out how much anti-TNF we had to inject into them to shut off the fibrosis process, process because we know the molecular mechanisms of how the fibrosis is formed, and we're able to shut that off with anti-TNF. And then, as I said, we did a 181-patient randomized trial, half treated with anti-TNF and half with placebo, and we'll see what the results are uh, come uh, fourth quarter. Okay, and, w- and what other conditions are you working in in addition to this one? So there's another condition called frozen shoulder, where uh, your shoulder becomes exceedingly painful, and uh, that lasts for several months, and then it goes into kind of a frozen category where you can't move it anymore. And about half of those people have Dupuytren's contracture as well, more common in, in diabetics. And we think that the fibrosis process in your shoulder is probably similar to the one in the in your palm of your hand with Dupuytrens. So we'll be injecting the anti-TNF into the shoulder joint again as soon as they develop pain, hopefully to prevent the whole fibrosis process and the need for surgery. A third condition is quite interesting. It's called postoperative cognitive dementia. And what we're finding is, is in older people is they do these extensive surgeries. Uh, following the surgeries, a fair percentage of them uh, are, are have a dementia, and some percentage of them uh, never recover, and they end up in a nursing home and eventually uh, die because. Wait, wait, they, uh, what do you mean? What, what kind of surgeries? Like immediately, acutely after the person has dementia that lingers. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty-seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. No, it, it's sort of like cabbage procedure, coronary artery bypass graft. When they do uh, hip replacements or uh, emergency hip repairs, 
or any kind of major surgery. And the theory here is that during the surgical process, uh, the damage to the tissue releases TNF, and this TNF goes to the uh, the brain and opens up the brain, and a lot of these uh, uh, chemical mediators that are harmful uh, get into the brain, especially in the areas where the uh, cognitive uh, domains reside. And we think we can prevent that whole thing with anti-TNF. And so we're gearing up a trial to actually do this in patients, probably start the first part of next year, uh, where we're going to, right during right before surgery, give them a small amount of anti-TNF so see if we can block that. So up until now, the surgeons have accounted this dementia on different kinds of anesthesia, but we think it's due to anti-TNF, and our people have been right before in a lot of these indications. We have uh, animal models and other things to uh, to really support that, and we know that uh, in patients, the levels of TNF they have are associated with the levels of dementia they have. So we think this will be quite interesting uh, trial and uh, be very helpful because there's 10 million surgeries a year in the U.S., same in the EU. So it's a huge market. Well, what percentage of them lead to this type of dementia? And you know, how old is old? Like, what are the common circumstances when a patient yeah. will have this resulting dementia? I, I think it's predominantly, say, after 60. And uh, it's seen in, in various trials. You look at the data, it's anywhere between 20 and 30%. Now, most of them uh, resolve in the next three weeks or so. They call it, you know, surgical fog or whatever they want to call it. But then about another 20% don't recover, and it goes on for over a year until they end up in nursing home or have to be cared for. Is it uh, accelerated in comparison to, let's say, you know, the onset of Alzheimer's or other dementias, or is it you know, kind of follow the same curve is just suddenly seeded and the person has it? Or like, what's what's it look like for them clinically throughout that year? Well, I, I think, you know, if they have any of the underlying conditions like, you know, early Alzheimer's or something that's obviously much worse, or they have some other kind of uh, of dementia, it, uh, it predisposes them to much more severe. I think that, uh, that what happens is that they just never recover from the surgery and they always have this fog and it continually gets worse uh, until, like I said, they're incapable of caring for themselves. That's what our, uh, our data so far has shown. So what would be the protocol? Like right after surgery, you, would you give them a succession of, uh, you know, injections or, um, you know, intravenously? Like what, what, how do you think this would work best? We think that the, uh, the intravenous infusion of anti-TNF would be started just before the surgery surgery. So if there's any TNF released from the tissue damage, it immediately is uh, disabled by the antibody. And that it'll just be a one-time dose. Okay. So are you, are you in clinical trials for this yet? Or like, how would that work to test it? The protocols are all done and ready to go. Uh, we will start the trials probably at the end of the year. The issue has been that with COVID, uh, it's uh, difficult to get the patients in and uh, get them uh, treated. But my guess is, by then, we'll have things under control and be able to start the trial. We've got some of the sites already set up, ready to go, but uh, it's just the uh, it's being done in the UK. And with the uh, COVID outbreak with Delta, they're still having a lot of problems with their ICU beds and surgical beds being occupied by those patients. Are you able to draw any data from the uh, you know the work you've already done? Like you said, the the issue in the hand. I don't quite remember the name of the condition, but if you do inject someone with TNF and it helps that condition. Do those people tend to go on to surgery to treat it or are they post-op where you do that? And is there any overlap between the dementia from 
a surgery for that condition versus uh, other conditions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, the, the, the Dupuytren's contracture is all very local, so none of the TNF goes out, and it's just treating the, the lesions. Same with the frozen shoulder. It's all local local treatment in the uh, joint, uh, so I wouldn't expect anything to be caused by that. For the surgeries, then, uh, like I said, at the time they begin the surgeries, they'll infuse the anti-TNF uh, and block any TNF that's released during any tissue damage, and uh, hopefully we'll see a benefit to those patients in terms of those that got placebo, which would be saline versus those who got anti-TNF in terms of development of dementia and persistence of dementia. Yeah. I just didn't know if people with frozen shoulder tend to be, you know, get operated on at some point and what happens to them. Um, are there particular surgeries that lead to this dementia and other ones that don't like you're able to characterize, you know, if the surgery works on this part of the body, the incidence of this post-surgery dementia is higher. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's seen more in uh, really significant surgery like cardiothoracic or coronary artery bypass graft where there's a lot of tissue damage as they do uh, all these surgeries or, or aggressive hip replacement and repairs, uh, maybe other surgeries where there's a lot of tissue damage. Those would be the ones where we would expect to see the most uh, post-operative dementia. Not, not so much in uh, maybe local procedures like... Uh, uh, frozen shoulder surgery or hand surgery, more in the larger uh, tissue damage uh, type of surgeries. So have you identified if there's genetic predispositions uh, to people having this post-surgery dementia? And if so, you know, have you characterized them? Have you found any of this? Uh, we haven't looked at uh, that particular aspect as yet. We may along the way, but at this point, uh, no, we haven't done that. Okay. And what's the timeline at which point will these these therapies uh, be in clinical applications? You know, is the is the hand issue one now in clinic, or if not, when? And same with frozen shoulder, and then with this post surgery dementia. Yeah, like I said, the uh, Dupuytren's trial is complete. The uh, data is being analyzed. Uh, when we get the data, we'll go to the uh, European and UK regulatory agencies to see if they might approve it, because uh, there were no adverse events in the whole trial. We know which antibody we've used, and it's quite safe. And if it uh, eliminates the, uh, the Dupuytren's onto the uh, disability contracture, we've done everybody a favor, including the patients. So we'll see if that's an approvable trial. And at the same time, we'll open discussions with the U.S. FDA in terms of starting similar trials in the U.S. Uh, for uh, frozen shoulder, we'll probably treat about 50 patients and see if we can prevent the pain and also prevent the uh, progression to the really frozen shoulder part and perhaps the surgery. That The first patient we injected in that will be probably mid-September, something like that. And post-operative dementia will probably be, like I said, first quarter or second quarter of next year uh, as we put all the pieces together. Um, what other um, maladies or diseases do you think TNF plays a large role in? Because, you know, you found it looks like perhaps at least three. Is there a whole host of other ones? And I know you don't have time and resources to chase down every one, but, you know, are you even able to say other applications that are, you're looking for in the future? Well, we know that the TNF is driving the fibrosis in these two conditions. And we're thinking that it might have a role in, say, uh, non-NASH, non-alcoholic steatorrhea hepatitis, 
and that eventually forms a formation. We're looking into that to see if TNF might block that process, but we don't know yet. That's research going on. So uh, we will see how that plays out. So there's maybe a number of these fibrosis conditions that uh, we might be able to treat. They'd be rather unique, uh, but it would be quite beneficial to patients for sure. Yeah, excellent. And I know with clinical trials, you don't know when it could be, you know, one, two, three, five, even 10 years. So I was going to ask you, when do you think these will be again in clinic? But I know it depends on a lot of factors. So, but hopefully in the the next few years, it sounds like uh, maybe all three of the applications will see clinical use. Yeah, I think by the end of next year, all of them will will be in the clinic. We'll have quite a lot of data uh, and be able to then decide how to proceed with uh, both trials uh, in the uh, U.S. and maybe in the rest of the world. So all of that's, uh, that's to come, but we're pretty optimistic right now. Yeah, any additional future plans for 180, or is this plenty to work on, well, we, or are there other focuses? We, uh, we're working with a Dr. Michelin in Israel, who is actually the, uh, the founder of the endocannabinoid human system. So he knows more about uh, cannabis and the molecules that cause different things than anybody else in the world. And so we're making some synthetic cannabinoids that won't have the hallucinations uh, and they won't uh, lead to addiction. But we already know that they work in, uh, by reducing inflammation and also pain. And uh, we have some already uh, selected the lead candidate and we have the uh, information, at least in animal models, that they work in those two areas. And so that's another program we'll be bringing along again. It matches into our other uh, inflammation and pain part of our, our overall strategy. So that's another one that we'll be uh, bringing along. Those trials will probably be starting. They'll be pre-IND studies in the next month or two, and then probably into the clinic about middle of next year. Okay. And, oh, one quick question. IND is, uh, what, what does that stand for? Investigational, investigational new drug. And how, how the process works, if you have a... Uh, a medicine that you want to use to treat patients in the U.S. under the FDA, uh, you have to file what they call an invest- investigational new drug uh, permit. And this is all the information you know about the drug, all the animal models, what you think, why you're doing it, what the structure is. It's a huge amount of information that you give to the FDA, and you outline then how you want to use it in an early stage trial uh, with the protocol and all the details. And the FDA looks at this and they'll say, okay, we want you to do this and this and this, or we want you to do it this way. And you uh, then negotiate with them as to what's the best uh, best path forward. So it's a pretty big process. It takes probably six or eight months to uh, get all these pieces together uh, in conjunction with the FDA. But once you have that in place, then you can go ahead and start treating patients uh, for the indication that you're uh, mapping out. Okay. Well, very good. Um, why is it called 180 Life Sciences? Are you trying to do a 180 with people where they you're turning them around from their their illness and making them better or is there another reason for the name well you know like i said in the in the 28 years since dr feldman and i invented remicade there's basically been no nothing much uh, new for anti-tnf until we came around so ours is a like 180 degree change in direction we're saying here's a whole new other set of indications that are different from what you've been doing. And there's, you know, there's five approved anti-TNFs in the U.S. and probably 10 biosimilars coming along. And they all do exactly the same thing. So there's not as much innovation there as we would expect. So our uh, our scientists and colleagues have uh, have 
found a new, new applications for these drugs. So that's where the 180 comes from. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Dr. Woody, um, what's the best place for people to find out more about 180 Life Sciences and your work? Where should they go? Oh, well, we have a website, 180lifesciences.com is probably the best place. And uh, that's where we'll list all of our uh, 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 details of uh, progress and our press releases and uh, filings with the SEC and all, all those other things would be there if they're uh, interested. Very good. Well, Dr. Woody, thanks so much for coming. And uh, it's fantastic that you, you helped develop Remicade and help so many people. And it sounds like you're on track to help a whole, whole bunch more. So thank you for what you do and for coming. That's it. That's the uh, that's the goal is to really help the patients because it's the important part. So I'm very pleased to be able to do this. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.